what went through your mind when you were doing that first deal? Yeah. So first of all, I was afraid. <laughs> um, I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm taking out, I just paid off all of my student loans and now I'm taking on, I, I got a $50,000 mortgage and I spent four years paying off $50,000. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm back here at this 50 number. What? So I was terrified. What if the tenants don't pay? Now I'm on the hook for this. The following is a conversation with Matthew Pezon. Matthew is a former chemical engineer and Fulbright scholar who left the corporate world to become a full-time real estate investor after nine years of side hustling. He is the owner of Pezon Properties, a team of local Pennsylvania buy and hold experts who purchase and improve rental properties in the Lehigh Valley area. He started real estate investing from nothing and scaled his portfolio to over 200 rental units and $25 million in assets. Here's our conversation. Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast, my man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you and a lot of really fun questions to get into. We're going to discuss a lot of really fun stories. Uh, but just to start out, how does a chemical engineer become a real estate investor? <laughs> uh, actually, not in the United States, which makes it a little more weird. So um, I did a Fulbright scholarship in Spain and I went to business school. So hmm. I, I learned all about business, debt finance. And that's when I learned I wanted to be a real estate investor, but I wasn't in the States at the time. So once I graduated and came back, that's when I started buying properties. Got it. Interesting. It's also, you know, a lot of people get their start, especially with all the real estate investors out there doing some kind of deal domestically. So always interesting to hear about those different stories and really cool that you got that experience internationally. But to dive deeper into that, I have to ask, you know, studying as a Fulbright scholar, studying abroad, how did you discover real estate investing in Spain? Yeah, so um, my whole life I had been paying rent up to that time because I didn't own any property. And so I always I would see that money kind of leaving my account every month and think, huh, you know, what if I were making that money instead of paying it? And, uh, and also I, I traveled a lot around Europe. So I got to see housing in different areas. I got to see different types of architecture, state-funded housing, private housing, different areas as I traveled. And and I realized that uh, we have a great opportunity in the U.S. You know, I, I became familiar with mortgage products around the world, mm -hmm. and I became familiar with landlord-tenant law around the world and the business climates in Europe. You know, at the time, Spain's youth unemployment rate was twenty-five percent, and I thought, wow, you know, something's going right in the states. We, I have an opportunity here. You know, a lot of my colleagues in Spain and Europe didn't have um, as strong of a business climate that we do in the states. And once I realized that, I thought, wow. I have a huge opportunity with this passport that I was born with. Um, I need to go back and go get it. And so that's when I, uh, that's, that's when I came back to the States and started buying. Uh, if it weren't for the international experience and Fulbright experience, I probably, I might've found real estate, but it might've taken longer. So it's a really interesting story there, but speaking of that international experience and getting to see some of the real estate projects overseas, are there any stark differences between real estate and real estate investing, you know, internationally, whether it's in Europe or kind of other continents versus the U.S.? Well, it's um, it's definitely country by country, city by city. But, um, for example, in Spain, the standard lease is five years and the protections are very strong for the residents. So if you don't if they don't pay, it's very I mean, it's it's a disaster. I mean, it could take years to um, get your property back. So I think that property rights. And, uh, you know, the individuals can own property. They have rights to their property. And I think that's very unique about the United States and other countries, as opposed to, um, 
residents having more rights than the owner, right? So I, I found there was a, it's an advantageous business climate and also environmentally, you know, in Spain and, and other European countries, they're very mindful of like the historic nature, the facades um, and the mm -hmm. environmental concerns. I mean, there could be ruins, right? There could be artifacts underneath these properties that you can't disturb. And so um, mm -hmm. there are developments that cost a lot of money to do because of the preservation efforts, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but it just makes it harder to develop. So um, well, some of those things don't really exist as much here stateside. Like there's, there's probably much more, it sounds like discretion within uh, U.S. real estate investing as compared to kind of Europe and maybe some older architects, especially when considering a lot of the things that you have to preserve. But quick note on that. So just out of curiosity, say if, for example, you're investing somewhere in Spain and, you know, God forbid or heaven forbid or whatever, you know, you said there's the standard lease there's five years, but say after a year, year and a half, a tenant stops paying. So what kind of protections can a landlord take to, you know, recoup their losses? Or is there any government subsidy uh, kind of where the landlord can still have income from that property, even though the tenant isn't paying for it? Right. So I'm not an expert in Spain uh, landlord tenant law um, because mm -hmm. I, I don't own any property there. Uh, but mm -hmm. um, my assumption is that it's not favorable for the property owner. <laughs> Um, you know, I've, well, I've well, read, we'll I've read, the, yeah, I've read the high level, like what, what the law says. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not favorable. Now, how does that play out in court and other things? I don't really know, um, because I haven't mm -hmm. done it myself. Got it. No worries. Maybe they'll have to make a, a suits version in Spanish for, and then have, have that be one of the cases. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. no, no worries, <laughs> no, no worries on there, but, uh, kind of back to your story, kind of coming to America and really scaling and building this real estate business. Just to get into the high level of it, I know you've scaled to over 200 rental units, which you know I have to say congratulations. I mean, that seems like a crazy number and over 25 million assets from nothing. How'd you get started? Yeah, so I, I guess going back um, even to when I was in elementary school, middle school, um, my parents separated when I was a child and um, I, was, um, I wasn't able to like go to summer camps and do different things like without having to do fundraising myself, you know, go door to door selling candles and different things. So I learned from a young age that I didn't want to be financially vulnerable. And I also, I learned entrepreneurship um, and how to sell things and, and do stuff that added value to other people uh, in exchange to get what I wanted to do. So um, because of that drive that's always been in me, I wanted, to, I wanted to be financially literate. I wanted to be in a good financial position. So when I graduated from college, I thought that was the way. I thought college was the way to go to uh, build wealth. And so I had 50 grand of debt and student loans, and I had no cash. And I started uh, in 2010 during the Great Recession, and I started paying off these, these loans. And my first boss out of college, I was in an IT role. There were no processes, no procedures. There were no instructions. He was a very like standoff, like sink or swim boss. And he told me I was the worst employee he ever had and the company should fire me. And I, I, I've I just, been there before, by the way, so no shame <laughs> on it. But yeah, well, I mean, I, at first I was crushed. Like, how am I going to pay this 50 grand of debt? And I mean, I guess you don't really have to do that anymore. But like at the time, you know, you had to pay student loans back. So, um, you know, so then that was like, how am I going to pay this debt? How am I going to do this? And I was, was scared I was going to get fired and, and all this stuff. And so um, that was when I realized I needed to find another way. 
So that's when I, uh, I started searching around for entrepreneurship and different ways that I could get involved. And I stumbled upon real estate and business school. Got it. Interesting. And so you end up going to business school and got some kind of real, some kind of a certification in real estate. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't real estate focused really. It was more um, like general business. Um, so it. not really real estate specific, but one module we did was on debt on finance. And I just, I just latched onto that. Like I didn't get all the stock trading and like options mm -hmm. and like digital stuff. I didn't understand all that stuff. I, I just knew I have a house, they pay rent. I've been in living in houses forever. That's all I needed to know. So I'm not like a super smart guy that like, you know, mm -hmm. is in all these like tech things and making millions of dollars doing tech. It's, I just, it's very, it's a very simple, basic business um, that, that my company provides, provide housing. For sure. Yep. And on a side note, if anyone tells you that they fully understand all the stocks, options, and all, all of these shenanigans, they're probably lying to themselves. <laughs> they're kind of just yeah. lying to you. I'm not saying, right. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not a skill. You can really train in it, but no one understands it a thousand percent. And if they are, uh, they're either lying or they're insider trading, which, <laughs> which is another <laughs> shenanigan in itself. But Back to the note that you were discussing, debt is actually a really interesting instrument and I think kind of the creation of a lot of wealth. And I think a lot of times, you know, people are scared to utilize it because they might not be as sure about how it works, but kind of we'll get into a little more into that later. But it's really cool how you were able to really latch on to this financial instrument and learn more about it. And speaking of debt, I know during your first deal, you had to kind of go through a lot of crazy financing. And I'll let you kind of touch upon that. But ultimately, what went through your mind when you were doing that first deal? Yeah. So first of all, I was afraid. <laughs> um, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm taking out, I just paid off all of my student loans and now I'm taking on, I, I got a $50,000 mortgage and I spent four years paying off $50,000. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm back here at this 50 number. What? So I was terrified. What if the tenants don't pay? Now I'm on the hook for this. So um, when I got back from Fulbright in 2014, I had no debt, but I had no cash either. Um, mm -hmm. I think I maybe had two or three grand of debt and very little savings. So, but I had a car that I owned free and clear. So I refinanced it. I got like 10 grand. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to buy this property, but I need cash because I have no down payment. Um, and then I did a couple cash advances on credit cards to get um, more cash to show as long as I didn't have a, too high of a debt level. And, uh, and I had saved up over the course of about eight months, I think another eight or $10,000 just from living really frugally. So I, I think I had 25 or $27,000 then, which most of it was debt. And then I put down a 20% down payment on a single family house in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And that was, that was how I got started. And I was very afraid. I, I, uh, you know, I had, there was work, the house needed work. Um, but I bought it for about 20% less than what it was worth. So mm -hmm. I realized quickly that I could generate wealth by buying properties below market value and solving a problem for a seller. And that became my business model. So really interesting that you were able to take advantage of that. And ultimately that's what became kind of the business model for pens on properties. But to get back to that first deal, I mean, you know, I appreciate you sharing that you had a lot of fear. And I think a lot of people aren't as vulnerable these days in sharing their honest experiences. But did you ever have the thought in your head, what if this all goes to zero? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's and it's still something that I look at. Okay, do we have the cash reserves we need? Do we have, 
uh, are we doing the right things on the management side? I mean, you always have to, it's not a, a, a thought or feeling that goes away in business. I mean, you mm -hmm. have to be watching your numbers. You have to be watching your portfolio, your investments. Um, you have to inspect what you expect. And so there was no, oh yeah, once I reached 10 units or 20 or 30 or 50 units that I stopped, I felt, oh, I'm good now. It's just a constant optimization, constant look at, you know, where's, where is the portfolio headed? Um, what changes do I need to make, et cetera. So it's, it doesn't stop. Got was there ever a backup option or was going to be like, this is, this is going to work out or I'm going to be in a really unfortunate situation? Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So when I brought my first house in 2014, I was working a full-time job and mm -hmm. I had been working a full-time job up until last year. So we're recording this in 2024. It was 2023. So um, mm -hmm. I had been double hatting for 10 years with like a corporate chemical engineering job. So I never stopped doing that. I did both. I would buy houses and work full time because I could get better financing. I could get better loans. I could do cash out refinances and uh, get more money than to buy more deals. And so my job was critical to the success. Got it. How many hours of sleep would you say you were getting during that time when you were kind of wearing both hats? Seven to eight. Yeah. Really? So you were able to, because that's what's really interesting, because, you know, to be candid to the listeners, we were just, me and Matt were just chatting off air about the importance of sleep. Uh, from very, I'll just leave you guys with a high level perspective. But, you know, what's really interesting, I think a lot of times, a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners kind of stress about their schedule or stress about, you know, trying to get enough sleep. But at the end of, a, at the close to the end of a closing day or close to the end of business, they think about, oh, there's one other thing. Maybe I'll get that done. And I think a lot of business owners will really resonate with that one thing becomes like 14 other things. And then you end up realizing you're not going to get a lot of sleep. So I have to ask you, you know, wearing both hats, how are you able to consistently get seven to eight hours? Because in my opinion, I think that's like the minimum amount you need to really maintain sanity throughout the day. Oh, yeah, to totally true. And I have three children under three, and it's more true now than ever. Um, but uh, um, in terms of how, I was always good at I'm not good at a lot of things, but one thing that I was good at was knowing what is the most important next step mm -hmm. and what's important versus what's urgent and doing what's important and urgent and really fine tuning what do I need to do, what can wait. So prioritization was a skill of mine. And so I could I could get done what I needed to at work because I knew what managed what what mattered the most to my my team. I was a, I was a, I had eight direct reports. What made it, what mattered to my boss and to my um so like the people that worked um with me or, or that were my subordinates, that my manager and then those mm -hmm. that were like kind of lateral what they needed. I knew what everyone needed. So I was I was crystal clear and I could prioritize. So in my full-time job, I was able to get it done, but I wouldn't like socialize or like take lunch breaks or like my lunch break was calling sellers to buy houses. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was always on, but then when I was off, I was off. Got it. So it sounds like the two biggest things is one to, to really work on prioritization two to be really intentional with your time and make sure there's no sunk time throughout the day. So you can be optimally efficient. So you don't have to worry, you know, about cutting time from sleep later on. Well, that's right. And I mean, the same, you know, I mean, this is a generalization, but I found that the same people that are, you know, 
oh, I have so much work to do and, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so busy or I don't have enough time. They're also the same people watching four hours of NFL games on Sundays or eight hours, right? Yeah. It's like, it's just, you know, I, I don't watch TV. Like, I just don't. Mm-hmm. I don't do stuff like that. Um, it, you know, it's um, – and I'm, I'm really trying to work on, like, okay, how can I get off my phone a little bit more? Because, like, I, you know, I kind of, like, read the news and stuff like that, but I'm trying to eliminate that because it's just a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So um, there's – it's really important to do time tracking. Like, okay, where am mm-hmm. I actually spending my time? And look at your phone. Mm-hmm. How long are you spending on each app on your phone? Like in your, if you have an iPhone, I just go in there and I look each week. Ah, oh, man, like it's a little hot, too high on this one news app or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like track it and, and reduce the, like if, if you're serious about it and if you are, then reduce the wasted time and increase the productive time. And that's what I've done you for know, years. I- you know, I think you bring up screen time is a great example. And I think a lot of people are here listening to that and have that, you know, we'll probably put on in the face of like, oh, I'm not on my phone that much, but deep down inside, <laughs> they're like, yeah, I should probably try to be less. And I'm actually happy you brought up that example because, you know, I'm definitely not, not a perfect individual working on myself. And I had the goal last week to decrease my screen time to at least to, to decrease it to a maximum of three hours a day or to average three hours a day because uh, Apple, Apple tells you that. Yeah. And essentially... Um, and I was fortunate enough that on, I believe Saturday night or sorry, Sunday morning. So I was out, was out late Saturday night celebrating a birthday. So the silver lining, I got my screen time on, on Saturday <laughs> night. We'll put it that way. And I was able to average two and a half hours. So that was like something that I was really, uh, really grateful for. And it's tough for someone like me, cause I'm doing a lot of work in media and I'm always kind of just like analyzing different media and stuff. Uh, but I think it goes to show that if you can look at the things that you can improve on and be honest with yourself to take really practical objective steps, how to improve it. No, it may not happen overnight, but always have that improving mindset. So it's really good that we're able to kind of share some practical examples, especially when people might have trouble kind of optimizing their schedules and really maintaining sanity. So really great notes on there. I'll share another um, example too, just really fast, like on time management there, I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. So I did my own QuickBooks, like literally transcribing data for my property manager software. I'm like sad to embar- mm-hmm. and to admit this, a little bit embarrassed, but I would like oh, put it into a QuickBooks file, like record it myself, like, oh, you know, $250 in rent. Like, and I, I would record it in a QuickBooks file and send it to my accountant instead of just saying, hey, accountant, here's the statements. Like, okay, yeah, you're going to charge me more, but just do it because I could have been mm-hmm. spending more time with family or spending more time finding deals instead of like literally writing in numbers. This is up till two years ago, by the way. So it's like mm-hmm. not like some distant thing. So I was doing the wrong things, even as productive as I was to buy. I bought 150 units while still working a full-time job. So I managed to do that and still do unproductive things. So just be really intentional with your time. Don't do low value things. It's okay to pay more to have someone else do things. So it frees up your time to do something that earns you more money. So if I would have spent $10 an hour to have my accountant's bookkeeper do that versus if I find a deal, my time's worth a thousand dollars an hour. Like I was literally giving up a thousand dollars to pick up $10. Like that's what I was doing. Right. So, you know, I think um, it's a really great point that you brought up for sure. Cause I think a lot of times people, and I think a lot of it comes from just our fear of delegating or sometimes not that we, not that we don't, I want to say not that we don't trust anyone, not that, you know, we think bad about others, but I think we just naturally trust ourselves more than others to kind of get something done right. Or it's really that mental adage of if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. Uh, but in reality, I think, you know, and a lot of people get burned sometimes, but, you know, that's that's a, a life lesson. But 
I really like the, the example you made because I think a lot of times people don't do that calculation in their head. They're like, oh, if I get this, this task will take me half an hour, whatever, I'll just do it. When realistically, if you assign a time or kind of a value to your time of $1,000 an hour and that task takes you half an hour to do, that's $500 that you, you just like lost out on. And when in reality, what you could have done is, you know, delegated that task, paid, for example, you know, $10, $20 for it and use that half hour of your time to productively add value. And the math at the end is plus 480. So it's either minus 500 or plus 480. I think when people do kind of that objective calculation or do that exercise, it makes a lot more sense. So I think hopefully we could help out people who are, are struggling with that. But I'm really happy that, that you brought up that point. But back to something that you were discussing earlier, uh, you mentioned that you were in a corporate job for a number of years and you were wearing both hats. When did you know it was time to quit your corporate job and just make the leap into real estate full time? When I did the math we just talked about and spending time working at my corporate job was costing too much, the opportunity cost was too high. So mm -hmm. in other words, if I was making like, I don't know, $50 an hour or something in that job, um, which is a good salary, but if I could do like three or four deals a year that I just like, and not even because I had been buying more units than that, but if I, so I just said, Ooh. wow, it's only, it would only take three or four units to buy and I could exceed my current salary in my corporate job. And I bought like 30 last year. What am I doing? Why don't I just go bo buy more units? <laughs> and so like once I, I knew what I was doing, um, I had a proven track record over the course of eight, nine years. I wasn't speculating like, oh, I'm going to go in this business. I just know it's going to work. No, no. I had nine years of proof to myself that it works. Um, I had cash in the bank and, you know, to weather storms and my portfolio was stabilized. And once I, and I had just closed on a package of properties. So once I did all those things, I thought, wow, you know, I could just buy more if I went out on my own. I think a good exercise that you kind of just described there too is you realize that the value of your expertise in one industry surpassed the value that you were getting paid in another. So maybe that's also a useful exercise for someone to do that's also wearing both hats and trying to determine if entrepreneurship is for them. So right. really insightful note on there. Back to some of your you know real estate experience, just throughout your journey, whether it was when you were working you know two jobs full time or kind of doing it on yourself, what would you say has been your craziest deal experience so far? Wow. I mean, the craziest deal experience. I mean, I've seen so much stuff. Um, like, yeah, uh, man, this one guy, I was working on a deal and um, in the middle of the deal, he got drunk, fell down the stairs and died. So are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. So wow. then I was dealing with his family and they were like, well, like, you know, and it took like five months to close because they had to do the estate paperwork and the attorney was slow and all this stuff. So, I mean, there's stuff like that has happened. Um, I mean, I've had my properties burned down from like fires next door that spread to my properties. Like there's just, I've seen so much stuff. Um, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of things that you get exposed to when you're in this business, like, because stuff happens at home, <laughs> domestic mm -hmm. disputes, violence, like, it, I mean, good things happen at home too. Right. But like, it's the, the crazy, like their houses, stuff happens, you know, they break, you know, they burn down. <laughs> so like I've, I've, Got you know, it. I've had sinkholes, like all this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, it's crazy stuff has happened. <laughs> yeah. When a lot of this crazy stuff happens, is the stuff insured at all? Or is it just kind of like shit happens kind of got to kind of make the most of it? 
Fortunately, in all those situations, um, the insurance, so like the sinkhole didn't really work out. Um, mm -hmm. but so I came out of pocket for that one. That was like 10 grand. It was under a garage. The, um, the fire actually worked out fine. Like they paid the contractor, um, and I got a rebuilt house. So, I mean, it, it does work out if you have the right insurance, but I wouldn't have known to have the right insurance if it weren't for my insurance guy, who's an expert in this. So. Um, because of the unknowns, you need cash mm -hmm. reserves and you need good insurance and you need good advisors to tell you what to do. God, it's always good to have uh, those experts and always have cash on hand. Cause you always have to expect that something's going to hit the fan when you least expect it. So really good note yep. on there. You know, when a lot of this stuff is happening and I'm sure this is probably harder earlier on, but it's probably an emotional roller coaster of like, why did this happen? This doesn't make any sense. So how do you manage your emotions early on when this stuff happens to really kind of expect it and know it's part of doing the business? I mean, you're not good at it at first. I wasn't. Um, it, I was no, almost sorry. taking things. Yeah, I was almost taking things personally. Like, why aren't they paying me? Like, I'm providing a good service. And I, I just thought, oh, well, you know, it's about I did something wrong or it's just no, it's just the business. People just run into hard times and they can't pay. It, now it's mm -hmm. it's almost it's almost emotionless like it's mm -hmm. this is the due date this is the work order we have to get the work done by this date um you know this mm -hmm. we need repairs done fast for our residents um we need to um get things done for them quickly like snow happens like i want the snow gone right like in 12 hours mm -hmm. it's gone we're not getting fines no one's slipping and falling like get it done right so like there's not mm -hmm. um we expect everything to be done in a certain amount of time we have metrics for that everything is calculated like a business I think when I struggled in the beginning, it's because I looked at it as like a, like a hobby or a personal pursuit and I didn't have metrics. I wasn't tracking things. I wasn't looking at things. I wasn't looking at data. I was just kind of in the weeds like, oh, like they're, they're not paying me. And then I was getting all upset about it. And it's just not, it wasn't a bit, I didn't have a plan. <laughs> like it's just, uh oh, what do I do now? <laughs> I had uh ohs for many years. Like, what do I do now? And now I have a plan for most things. But, uh, I mean, how do you not make it a personal pursuit? You have to really think through and plan and put in processes, mm -hmm. procedures, systems, and you have to have data. It's good that you track that stuff because I think that's the only way you can probably maintain your sanity uh, when doing a lot of these things. But to get a little more specific, you know, you've been doing this a while and you've been really successful thus far, but you know, not all of us are perfect in our careers. If you don't mind me asking, what do you think has been the biggest mistake in your real estate career? I mean, I've made so many mistakes. I mean, it's hard to pick one, but I would say it all comes back to if I had to consolidate all my mistakes, it would be working with the wrong people. Um, mm -hmm. And that comes back to me. What was my hiring process? What was my vetting process for contractors? What do I do in certain situations and just not foreseeing what would happen like, I just, I wasn't that street smart growing up. Like I didn't need to be, um, I wasn't used to kind of the games that contractors and tenants play. So like having the wrong people living in your houses, hiring the wrong contractors, um, working with the wrong people, hiring the wrong employees, it, it all comes back to a people issue. And then that comes back to me of what did I do wrong in this vetting process that I ended up picking this person? What's wrong with me that I picked you in, in other words, right? So what did I do wrong to pick this person? That's the wrong person. I appreciate you sharing that. I think a lot of times people look for the right people 
I think at least if there's any silver lining in those cases, we know that one of the better business practices now is to really vet the individuals you hire and make sure their interests are aligned with those. So I appreciate you sharing those mistakes, but to get back to some of the work that you're doing, I know a lot of the work that you've done revolves around kind of finding deals that not a lot of other people kind of, uh, that don't go public, I'll put it that way. I think that's the better way of, of looking at it. And they're called off-market deals. So how do you find those off-market deals? So I started out finding them by handwriting five or 600 letters and mailing them to people in Allentown that own properties. So I would literally look up their addresses mm -hmm. one by one, handwrite a letter and mail it. Um, it took forever. My wife helped me. Um, and uh, we stopped doing that. So then we started buying lists. And um, then we got a printer to print off letters. And so we were just mailing to anyone who owned a property that was um, a landlord. It's like a non-owner occupant and saying, hey, mm -hmm. my name is Matt. If you want to sell your property, call me. <laughs> and then my phone mm -hmm. would ring and then I would call them back and build a relationship and go look at the property when they were ready and then make an offer. Right. So, um, but then working through me. I got a better price, but then they didn't have to pay a realtor. They didn't have to do any repairs out of pocket. They didn't have to deal with difficult tenant situations. Like I took on all those problems. So, um, but that's what I started doing, just sending letters and then talking to people on the phone. It worked out awesome. And I think that really goes to show that those relationships really laid the bedrock for a lot of these deals. And nice that you were able to alleviate some of those, uh, those pressures for them and really make it count. So really great note on there. Another interesting note uh, that you kind of just mentioned too is that, or the, in your background, is that a lot of times you invest in these properties and are really there to serve the community and to try to make everyone's lives a little easier. Uh, but what would you say the big difference is between you and a typical house flipper? Right. So a house flipper is looking to get in and get out and profit off of a situation. Um, mm -hmm. That's not to say I don't flip. Um, like probably, I think I only did two or three last year. So, but generally speaking, what my company does is we buy and hold rental properties. So we eradicate blight. We mm -hmm. provide safe, affordable, functional housing to families who can't afford to buy homes. And so, mm -hmm. uh, and they, they're newly renovated when we buy them and then they're used as rental housing. So um, yes, a profit has to be made so we can keep the lights on, but we're not looking to like a wholesaler, like flip a piece of paper to someone else and profit off of a like an assignment. We're not looking to mm -hmm. generally you know, flip a property, like unless if there's a deal we can't refuse and like an, an owner occupant would buy it, we'll, we'll do it. But we're generally buying rental properties and just operating them for the long term. Got it. So it sounds like a lot of times people might be, we'll just call them really aggressive middlemen. Instead, what you're doing is yes. kind of doing something. And the reason that you, you're able to make profit off of it is because you're kind of investing in it for the long run and kind of it's a win-win for everyone. Well, yeah, that's that's right, and and that's been the model, and uh, that's what we like to do. I mean, we believe that the best selling experience is to someone who already owns a property on your block or in your community. You know, not someone from out of state or out of the area, or someone who's trying to just like flip for a profit. So um, mm -hmm. that's why we, when we reach out to our neighbors, we say, "Hey, um, we own property near you. <laughs> if you want to do this deal directly with someone who's already invested nearby you in your community, we'll talk." Got it. Really a great note on there. What's something you think every real estate investor should know, but doesn't? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, that the resident is the most important thing about the house. Um, mm -hmm. Because like people, they'll just put on a spreadsheet and they'll say, well, I'm going to collect this much rent and here are my expenses. 
100% the expenses are there all the time. You owe the tax, you owe the insurance, you owe the bank. They're not changing. Where real estate investors get it wrong is they forget that the most important part is the resident living there that's actually paying the income. So they, mm -hmm. real estate investors make mistakes by minimizing tenant concerns. They don't provide good customer service. They don't provide timely repairs. They aren't good at good communicators and residents are left feeling like, oh my gosh, this person didn't fix this for, you know, this landlord who's taking all my money, didn't fix this and they won't get back to me. And now they're upset and they move. So real estate investors income quickly goes down because they aren't able to provide a good service. That's the biggest mistake. People forget about the customer. Got it. I appreciate you sharing that. I can definitely uh, resonate and agree with that. Always important to keep out, to keep in mind who the, the person is you're serving at the end of the day. So great that you're able to have that as, as a North Star for everything that you do. Uh, on another note, as someone with a background in both, what would you say is harder, chemical engineering or real estate investing? <laughs> chemical engineering. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, definitely. It definitely is. I mean, there's so many nuances to, I, I was, um, I mean, if you just look at the COVID stuff, I mean, we were providing oxygen to hospitals in New York City and, you know, all around the country during COVID and like putting up temporary uh, oxygen supplies. I mean, it was, it was crazy, right? So like, there's so much that goes into that. And it's funny because people spend a lot of time learning their jobs and learning their trades. They won't spend any time learning about their financial future and their wealth, but the whole reason why they're going to their job to begin with is to get money. And so um, mm -hmm. I, I found that learning those chemical engineering skills was a distraction because the whole reason I was doing them was to make money. <laughs> so um, I, I find it, I find chemical engineering harder. I'm good at both, but probably better at real estate now. I, I forget a lot of the stuff I learned in chemi school, but um, God, and I'm only one test. I'm only one test from being licensed. Like I could go sit for the professional engineering exam like next month. I'd still qualify, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, but I'm I'm just not going to. God, I think I think yeah. you should uh, should stick where you are. It sounds like it's working out, but uh, on a similar <laughs> note, you know, and I'm happy that you brought up kind of the financial aspect of it. Do you think real estate is something that you're really passionate about, or do you think it's just the easiest way to keep peace of mind about long-term health? No, well, I am passionate. Yeah, I, I am passionate about it because have you you know Billy Joel um and his song about Allentown? If you if you look that uh, up, I Billy, heard Billy Joel, but not the song. Yeah, it's like a lesser-known song, but he actually wrote a song about Allentown, where I'm from, and it's basically about urban blight, decay, job loss, like everyone's out of the mm -hmm. job, like hard times, right? So Allentown was in a rough, was in rough shape for a long time. And, uh, I want to, I've been turning that around for 10 years with other developers, but, um, yeah, it's for me, it's personal. Um, Billy Joel, if you're watching this, uh, I'm coming for you. I'm fixing Allentown. So <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll tell you. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but no, it, it's, uh, it's about making the community better and, and reversing decades of decline, um, in my hometown. Um, and, and building wealth is, is, uh, mm -hmm. is about that. So a byproduct of that for sure. Yeah. We love to see that the fact that you're doing it, you know, it sounds like it's a more, it's a fulfilling way to live your life. And if you can make an income from it all the better, but beautiful note on there. And on a similar note, you know, on a parting note here regarding your legacy, when it's all said and done, how would you want your legacy described in one sentence? Wow. I hadn't really thought about it too much. Um, I would say you can think that... about it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, I would say that, uh, that, 
you know, if others were talking about me, you know, after I'm not here, that I gave my best effort and was kind to everyone that I interacted with and was a, you know, good person and, and uh, made a difference. I think uh, that's a beautiful sentence there. And, and I guess now you have an answer for that, but uh, it's been an absolute blast. And thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Matthew Pezon. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube and subscribe.